So you think that you're fine. You think that everything's okay. Like, well, I can go to work. I can go to uni. I can do these things. And I feel okay. I'm not having an emotional breakdown. But actually, like, a part of that, that is dissociation. It's like it's too much for your body and your brain to cope with. And so it, it numbs you out. And that's a really common experience in grief, as an example, where you people just go into shock and then, like, disbelief and numbness until they have some maybe skill or some awareness or some ability or space to actually sit with what is going on. A quick note that this episode deals with subject matter surrounding sex, trauma, sexual violence and PTSD. If you find these topics distressing, please seek additional support in the resources we've provided below. Christine and I have also both legally consented to this conversation taking place on air. This is Life Chats, deep and meaningful conversations with friends and strangers. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording on today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I extend my respect to their elders past, present and emerging, and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander listeners that we have joining us. Sovereignty has never been ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Christine Rafe is an experienced sex and relationship therapist. Alongside her master's studies in sexuality and sexual functioning, Christine has undergone specific training in EMDR, relationship therapy, embodied counselling, clinical trauma training, and has recently completed her 200-hour trauma-informed yoga teacher training. In 2017, Christine started Good Vibes Clinic where she sees individuals, those in relationships, plus runs group workshops surrounding intimacy, communication, and sexuality. Christine champions a holistic view of overall well-being and understands that intimate relationships, sexual enjoyment, and sexual expression are foundational parts of a fulfilling life. There is one other thing. Christine is also my sex and relationship therapist. Okay, let's do this. Welcome to Life Chats. I feel like we're pretty familiar with this sort of format, sitting across from one another, talking regularly. Yeah. But today I'm excited because I get to ask you some questions, find out about your um, passion for relationship theory and good vibes, which is doing amazingly. But I'm interested to hear, have you always been interested in sociology and relationships and sex therapy growing up? Was that something that you wanted to get into? Did you kind of like analyze your family's relationships and kind of where did it all come about for you? Yeah. So I'd always been like a people person. Therapy specifically like wasn't something that I was like saying from like five years old. I wanted to be an architect. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Bit of a pivot. Yeah. <laughs> or like an interior designer. But as I sort of grew up, like I didn't even really think about my family's relationships or anything like that, that until I started studying relationship therapy. But I guess to give like some background, my family life, I was like extremely privileged in terms of like a family that were together that were like, I guess like it wasn't a volatile household, but it was also quite, I don't want to go so far as to say emotion less, but it was, you didn't talk about your emotions, everything was sort of bottled up. Um, and I only sort of learned more about that, obviously, like as you get older and you start to reflect back on those things. But growing up, it was like 
my parents never argued or I never saw them argue, but they probably never spoke about the things that were actually going on. So there's a lot of stuff was like brushed under the carpet. And as a result, like I learned that like you don't, I didn't really learn much about my own emotional awareness or regulation. Um, and like my siblings and I, we would fight like siblings, but there was never like real emotional conversation that was happening. So I guess that's a bit of backstory in terms yeah. of like <laughs> me. My upbringing and my route to therapy. So as I said, I wanted to be an interior designer. Mm-hmm. Then when I finished uni, I applied for architecture and I didn't get in. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. So when I finished school, I applied for architecture and didn't get in. So then I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Went on like a gap adventure. And then I found a health science and rehabilitation counseling degree. Cool. Um, so that's sort of where I started. And then when I finished my master's in rehab counseling, I started working in traumatic injury rehab. So that was things like car accidents, um, workplace incidents, and then anything else that would just um, be assigned as traumatic. So that'd be physical and psychological. Mm -hmm. And I liked parts of it, but I didn't love it. What did you enjoy about it? I liked the people component. Like I think because I learned so much about myself at uni in terms of like emotional regulation and like awareness of, um, attachment styles and like all of these sort of things, then I just like developed this real like desire to have vulnerable conversations with people Mm. and sit in like discomfort, which was something that I'd like never done when I was a kid. And so because of that, I really enjoyed that component of the role. What I didn't like about it was that I was trying to support people who really didn't and this is not the case for everyone, but didn't want to be there. You know, like there was a lot of adjustment to injury and adjustment to disability and a lot of, um, I was going to say victim mentality. That's not what I want to say. That's okay. <laughs> you can cut around that yeah. one. Yeah. But I understand what you're trying to say. It's like they're in that circumstance because they've had an accident, not because yeah. they want to like learn about their relationships yeah. and yeah. and their psychology. Totally. And often they're sort of mandated to be there as a result of like whatever insuring body was supporting them. So whether it's yes. like workers' compensation um, or like CTP insurance and they sort of have like an obligation to be engaged in a process mm-hmm. whether they want to or yeah. not. Right. So it's it I learned a lot about like you can't make people change or do anything that they don't want to so do. True. Um people have to be like inspired themselves to want to do it. So it was challenging work and I liked parts of it, but yeah. yeah. Just on that, I want to continue talking about what's inspired you to build your business. But do you find that you have clients at the moment that aren't committed to doing the work or kind of say that they want it but don't actually make changes and how do you go about that? Yeah. So yes and no. I think because it's a private clinic, people are paying to be there. Yeah. So I think that comes in itself with like a bit of a motivation of like a financial accountability to a process. I think I see it the most when working with couples because usually there's one person in the relationship that is like, I want to do this or we need this or they have something that they want to work on and maybe their partner is a bit begrudgingly engaged Um, and that's not the case in every circumstance but when people present with like a limited desire to change, it's usually in that context because otherwise they just stop coming. That's difficult. Would you ever just split out the therapy by just approaching the one person in the relationship who wants to be there and doing it privately? Or it's kind of like if they're both not in it, they don't do it. Yeah. So usually what happens with couples is that one person, if there is a more motivated person, they will present first 
individually. Yeah. And they will be like, I have a partner. They don't want to be involved, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera. And then there's a lot of stuff that we can do individually with a person. But when the issue is relational, so when it comes to like sexual, the sexual relationship, regardless of what's going on and one person who might perceive themselves and often does perceive themselves to be the problem, I have low desire, therefore I'm the problem. I have erection issues, therefore I'm the problem they don't really think about the fact that like their partner is also part of that sexual relationship. And if they don't join in, in some respects, they don't have to come to every session or even come to any sessions, but they have to be engaged with their partner in like what they're learning and supporting them in that. On your training, what did you really enjoy about it? And did you find it triggering in any way that if you're in a relationship at the time or single, that it was bringing up all this stuff for you that you kind of had to, for the first time since being in this household that wasn't really emotional, deal with all your stuff? Yeah. What did that that look like? So, well, what actually transitioned me from rehab into sexual health was when I was in my early 20s, I was in a relationship that started like I was living in the US and then I came back to Australia with a partner from who was like a long distance initially and my desire like completely disappeared and I was struggling with some health issues and obviously didn't at the time put those things together went and saw a GP and the GP was like kind of brushed me off like you're young maybe it's your relationship you know like goodbye that's so frustrating yeah and that was 2011 and so I like tried to find resources, sex therapists, like someone that could support me or could at least like help me understand like why as a 21-year-old I was experiencing this and I couldn't really find. There was a couple of people online or whatever but not really any anything. So that's sort of what like transitioned me into studying sexual health counselling. But in that relationship it was tough, right? Like when I actually started studying, I was no longer with that partner when I started studying sexual health but in my current relationship like so many things about my own emotional unawareness (laughs) and my partner's emotional unawareness and like inability to communicate about things. And again, I noticed the pattern of like brushing things under the carpet, like not discussing people pleasing. That's probably was sort of my like distress response. So just like placating, like everything's okay. My feelings don't matter or I don't know what my feelings are, so I'm not going to talk about them. And so it all came to the surface. And fortunately, my partner is very understanding (laughs) and is like semi along for the ride. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Did you find that with the people pleasing, like, or any aspect of that training, you would come home and be like, I just learned about this and like, I think that's me? Or would you kind of just deal with that internally? What was the process of like working through that for you? Yeah. A lot of it was like internal work. And I was doing, as part of like ongoing accreditation in any therapy um, industry, but in sex therapy, you have to do monthly supervision, which is basically like therapy and also coaching. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. sometimes it will look like me having like my own therapy session and sometimes it will be like case studies or like going with sort of difficult um, situations and working through them with a um, experienced supervisor in the industry. So a lot of it was done through that and just like reflective work and then some sharing and some like we need to talk about these things. (laughs) to fix this. Yeah. Did you find that it affected your family relationships as well, not just romantic? So interestingly, like around the same time that I started going into sex therapy, my parents separated and my mum got cancer for the second time. So... I think those two things really like, I guess like broke down the like social construction of like, we're this perfect family and like, you know, our parents never argue and we went to great schools and we're now in university and like this whole thing sort of like fell apart. 
And because of that, there was just like this shift in like open communication in my family, which kind of happened at the same sort of time. So that was great for me (laughs) because it meant that I could start to challenge some of the like people pleasing or the avoidance of emotional um, awareness. It all kind of came up at the same time because like no longer could my parents deny like their emotions because they were there and they were raw. Yeah, it's kind of like it forced you. Both aspects of your life, your training and your personal life was forcing you into this honest person that had to like face everything. Yeah. I want to talk about now being a therapist and are you in a relationship? Yes. Okay, so (laughs) the reason I want to ask is because I feel like there's this misconception that therapists have it all together, whether you're a psychologist, a relationship therapist, whatnot. Yeah. There's this kind of pedestal that clients put you on that like you must have it all figured out. And so I suppose I'm keen to find out how do you deal with your relationships now? Do you find that therapy clients bring up issues for you that you then go and approach in your own relationship Mm -hmm. or do you often try and like therapize your partner (laughs) or your family and how do you go about that? Yeah. So in the context of like my romantic relationship, it's interesting. I mean, like I'm a human being, right? Like do as I say, not as I do sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Golden words of advice. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like I've gotten a lot better at at knowing these things, but it can sometimes fall down because there is this dynamic in our relationship where like, because I am a therapist and because I work specifically in relationships and sex that I'm like, if, if I notice, you know, um, a threat or I notice like a triggered response from either myself or my partner, I like almost switch into like therapy mode and I'm like, okay, like let's regulate ourselves, self-soothe. That's awesome. Yeah. And switching into like, I feel about, you know, X, Y, Z, but then in response, depending on the situation, of course, but in response, like my partner can sometimes feel like he's a client. Right. Um, And that's something that we, is like an ongoing um, navigation for us. Yeah. But generally speaking, I think it's useful. Like Mm. I I know the things, but sometimes me saying I know the things to my partner can feel, you know, like a power imbalance. Yeah. It can be difficult though, because it seems like there's always one person who opens that conversation, like whether you're a therapist or not, if there's an issue in the relationship, someone has to bring it up Uh to start the conversation. So you're probably just more likely to be the one to do that, it sounds like. And probably more likely to bring it up in a way that is like textbook yeah yeah <laughs> saying all the right the research things. tells me yeah. to do it this way yeah exactly yeah. that can be hard what about your family do you find it hard to set boundaries or do you therapize your siblings or your parents I found um like my dad now is in a relationship and originally like early on in their relationship would like contact me and like share things about oh. the relationship like nothing that was really crossing any boundaries that I was uncomfortable yeah. with but um sort of almost felt like the therapist like yeah. sometimes I'd finish the call with like all right I'll send you an invoice but generally no mm-hmm. like I think my family will come I think I'm sort of the one that they would come to if they had like an issue or something that they weren't sure about but it's not I don't feel like I have to do anything and like most of the time like me and my um siblings and my dad have a great relationship now so we just like like we don't actually have that many um issues within like our family dynamic anymore so it's nice to just be able to have a laugh and totally yeah and they just ask my dad just always asks questions about like like sex and yeah, yeah. just awkward stuff for my younger brother. <laughs> right. Every family has one of those yeah. <laughs> conversations. I was wondering though, from coming from someone who was a people pleaser, you kind of maybe didn't have many boundaries now to like knowing what your boundary is and what you're comfortable doing for friends and family and your partner. 
what is that journey? Like you said, there's a lot of internal work, but coming into practice, like for someone who's listening, that is a people pleaser. I'm one of them, I think, and I'm working on that. What are some like tangible strategies daily that you can do to kind of pull back your power a little bit? Yeah. So the first, I guess the biggest thing for me was practicing saying no. And that's something we can start practicing like not in our most vulnerable emotional relationships. We can start practicing that for like saying no to, I don't know, sugar in our coffee yeah. or like, you know, it, it, it doesn't, I guess that the tangible thing is to start small is like think about if you feel like you are a people pleaser or that you say yes or you don't know what your boundaries are, learn what your boundaries are, like check in with yourself as to like, what is it that feels comfortable for me? What do I want in this situation, irrespective of what socially might be acceptable or what people might want from me? Or what your family tells you is, is acceptable. Yeah. 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 And just starting with that. And and I think the thing about setting boundaries, particularly with family, where if you haven't ever set boundaries and there's like, especially from parents, an expectation that like you don't have boundaries. Yes. The hardest thing is getting started. But I feel like you almost just need to be like, go in, like know what they are. And then just go in hard commit. and fast. Yeah, you got <laughs> you to, commit. to commit. Because we actually talked about this in my last session about boundaries around my family and how to communicate that, particularly with my parents. And I think it's just one of those things that the more you do it, it's like a muscle, it gets stronger. Uh-huh. And now I know the wording that I need to use and how to either diffuse a situation or go into a situation yeah. to communicate how I feel and being okay with walking away from it if that's not being received by yeah. the other person. I think and that's I th- what I've learned. Yeah. And I think that that's the hardest thing with family members is because they are our family and we love Mm. them most of the time (laughs) but they sometimes we need to accept that they maybe won't understand us and I think the generational difference between like parents who are who have adult children now is huge like a lot of people in their teens 20s and 30s are like dealing with their Mm. shit like they're they're doing the work, they're reading, they're like attending therapy, they're doing things, they're learning more about setting boundaries, about saying no, and they're practicing those things and their parents are just like, what is going on? I don't even know what the word no it means. Yeah. Yeah. Can we actually talk about this? Because this was like one of my questions is, do you find that there is a rise in other relationship issues, reasons people are coming to therapy? Is it a cultural or social thing or the fact that we just live in a Western society and we can afford these resources now? Like what are all the factors that kind of contributing to the fact that there's this huge rise in people going to therapy, particularly relationship therapy? Yeah. All of the above to what you said. (laughs) Yeah. I think like accessibility is a big thing. And so, you know, I mean, living in Sydney and when people have like decent salaries for the most part that people can afford to do these things, there's also heaps of like amazing resources that are available and books and things like that that we can do. Exactly, for free. Um, But I think what we're learning about ourselves now is that our mental health, I mean, the mental health is a mental health crisis. And so we're at a point now where we actually can't ignore not like having boundaries and working ourselves to the bone and just following like the linear social narrative, whether we want to or not. So we're challenging all of these things because they are impacting our health. So I think particularly when it comes to like relationship and sex therapy is that people realize like, I don't need to just get married when I'm young and stay with that partner forever, no matter what happens. I can choose a different relationship style. I can choose to leave a relationship. I don't have to be married. I don't have to have kids. Like all of these conversations and all of these ways that it's being normalized to say 
no to following that one linear narrative. Even just hearing you say those words, I don't have to have kids, I don't have to get married. I remember when we first talked about that in session and that was just a huge light bulb moment for me Mm -hmm. because it's kind of like you grow up thinking that your life is almost planned for you or that there's this expectation of how your life will go. And then if you kind of align yourself with what you actually want, you realize it doesn't match. You almost feel like you're doing the wrong thing or something wrong with you. And to have someone say a therapist or like otherwise, you don't actually have to do that. I feel like is very empowering. Yeah. You mentioned mental health crisis. So what do you think is contributing to that? Rising expectations on humans, Mm. right? And like you think, I mean, if I put this into like a relational context, we maybe not in our generation, but generations before had learned that like marriage, marriage was about like a financial family commitment. It wasn't about love. It wasn't about sexual chemistry. Like it was literally just like these families could do well together and so we're going to marry these two people together. And some cultures still do that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. So we now have an opportunity to like, well, I guess in a relationship context we now have an expectation on a partner, especially in a monogamous context, that they will fulfil every single need that we have at all times. And that is like a huge ask for one person to be able to do. And like we sort of place pressure on our partners to like meet our needs without maybe thinking about how we might be able to meet our own needs. Where else can you have your needs met? Yeah. Can you go to the gym to do your emotional and physical well-being? Can you go to a therapist as an emotional support? Can Can you you... join like a club where you've got a social network if your partner has lower social needs than Mm, you? I think such an important question to ask. Yeah. Is there a rise in relationship and pleasure issues? Do you think social media has an impact on that as well? And porn, can we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So firstly, the rise in like sexual and pleasure issues. I don't think there's actually a rise in pleasure issues. I think there's just an acknowledgement like that we can have pleasure. Mm. I think when I've seen clients uh, in the past who've been sort of like in 40s and like in their 40s and 50s, especially for those who've been socialized as women or those with a vulva, there's been such limited pleasure education that any of us have received, but particularly that it's kind of like sex has never really been about the pleasure of the vulva or about an orgasm from a clitoris. Mm. It's almost always been like reproductively focused, even though most people aren't having sex for reproduction mm. and very penis centric and penetrative, penetrative and ejaculatory focused. So I think that whilst there's more people presenting and talking about like issues with pleasure and orgasm and all of these sort of things, it's actually just reflective of us being like, actually, I can have that and I deserve that. And sex is about me too. I'm worthy of that. Uh-huh. Yes. So this was very interesting to me because I feel like most of my education around sex has come through you or came through porn prior to you. Yeah. And I had to like rewrite that narrative around what sex even is. Yeah. And there's so many things, like I've kept a journal for the last three years seeing you and I was just reading over it. There's so many things that were like big aha moments for me and uh, impacting the way that I date and have sexual relationships now but one of them is that sex isn't linear Uh I always thought that you know it's like first second third fourth base you kiss then there's hands then there's oral then you have sex then they finish and then then you're done yeah and I think honestly I would bet on the fact that 90% of people listening to this young women especially would have that same view yeah 
So if that's coming from porn, where do you think the issue can be rectified? Is it getting education into schools? Like how do we stop this? Yeah, I would love to stop <laughs> we need a million, We need a million Christines in yeah. every school around the country. Yeah, honestly. The, tr- the tricky thing about pleasure-focused education in school is that the assumption from parents, and the reason why there's been so much pushback on this, is that it will teach people that they can have sex. Yeah. Like it will encourage people to have mm. sex. The thing that people don't realize is that we're going to have sex regardless. Yep. Like teenagers are going to have sex. Their hormones are running in overdrive. Like that is the the point innately in our in our human existence yeah. where those things start to happen. So like by not providing pleasure education to children or not providing appropriate like consent educational boundary setting or teaching like people what can actually feel good then they're going to just they're going to have sex it's just going to be bad sex that's the thing and I knew this conversation was going to be difficult but I'm willing to go there because I know it will help people I genuinely had sex for like five years from the start of my first sexual relationships hating it like honestly I thought of the word it's I was enduring which is uh-huh. honestly heartbreaking to me like just enduring this act that I didn't like because it didn't feel good and I also didn't know how to fix it like I just yeah. thought there's something wrong with my body I'm broken or there's like I'm not maybe I'm asexual because I just don't enjoy this yeah but now I understand that it was just complete lack of awareness about my own body what felt good and what is actually possible in a sexual relationship yeah. like to do it the linear way that I just described doesn't work for most yeah. women or people like yeah. and particularly yeah. if they don't know what they need even if you are following that linear process to know what you need at each mm. of those stages to know what you need before you even start kissing someone mm. right like what is the context how do I need to be feeling about myself that day what are the mm. things that maybe can support my own arousal before I even start kissing someone mm-hmm. and then at each step what type of external touch do I like mm-hmm. how can I ask for what I want you know how can I show what I want all of those things even if it does go to penetrative sex I remember also being concerned that when I was becoming like aware of all this knowledge and the way that I needed to communicate in relationships, I was and still am very scared to like bridge that gap and have those conversations because for so many years and for so many people, I think it's just not realistic to like say to a partner, I need exactly this for this many minutes and like, because it almost ruins the vibe. Like you want, you have this idea in your head that sex is like this crazy movie scene where there's just so much chemistry and lust and you just have sex on the floor. you know exactly how to do it. And then you both get off. It's amazing. You go again. But like the reality is it's messy. It's awkward, especially with a new partner. You have to literally figure each other out. So I suppose what are like the first steps of that? Learning what you like first. Mm. Yeah. Because if you don't know what you want, then what are you actually asking for? Mm-hmm. And actually I'm running like a workshop at the moment. Mm-hmm. And last night we did all like pleasure education right. and yeah. it was with like 20 grown adults mm-hmm. and who'd never seen the clitoris before, like never wow. seen the full structure of the clitoris. And, and like also explaining to them, like, if you don't know what feels good for you, then like, how can a partner, like, we're not mind readers. Mm-hmm. And secondly, like, if we don't even know how to describe our own need for pleasure or what we what we want, then how can anybody else? Totally. But I think second to that, like, as you say, you know, it's not necessarily about going, here's my like script of like the mm-hmm. 10 step process <laughs> that I need to get off oh, because, funny. and this is the case for any human, particularly those who menstruate and have different hormones at different times of the month touch sensation Mm. orgasmicity like all of these things can be so different and varied so it is like a constant learning process just on this and I'm talking because I am a straight woman but for most women in general 
I think I recall you saying it takes like 15 to 40 minutes to be aroused, yeah. which I'm sorry, but I don't think men know that because <laughs> honestly, I actually had a partner say to me once, which was so traumatic for me after about 10 minutes of, I don't know, whatever we were doing and I wasn't feeling it. And I said to him, it's just not going to happen tonight. Like mm-hmm. I'm not in the mood. He was like, what's wrong with you? And I just thought it's because wow. it's taking time. Like it's because men with or people with a penis have an erection. They're like automatically ready to yeah. go. You can see that they are ready to go. Women yeah. take tend to take a little bit more time. Well, the physiological process of arousal for a person with a vulva versus a penis is so different. And Mm. you're right. I'm glad that you remembered the the stat. All of it. 16 minutes is the average up to 40 minutes. Right. And that is until your your vagina is ready for penetration. Mm -hmm. So that's not even like to reach orgasm or anything like that because a penis owner can have that in a couple of minutes, right? Like being ready for penetration really means having an erection and for a person with a vagina it means vagina being lubricated that the cervix moves back and that actually you're ready to experience pleasure through clitoral stimulation because the clitoris has also become erect in that time so the process for a person with a vulva is like there are stages to the process whereas for a person with a penis it's like blood circulates to the area the penis becomes erect and that's it so yeah the difference and it's interesting when you look at that so you think um the average time to ejaculation for a penis owner in partnered sex is four minutes mm-hmm. and the average time for a vagina to even become aroused is 16 minutes. Wow. So it really shows like that disparity and distinction. Yeah. But because, you know, we live in our body and unless we have gone out of our way to mm-hmm. learn about how other bodies experience things, like people who have penises just assume that it's the same. And all of our sexual um, research and education up until like recent years has been on those with a penis mm. most of our medical like That's if you think true. about all medical stuff even i mean i sort of heard that start about the seat belts are designed for like car crashes and they're designed yeah. for people who are in male bodies who have like wow. wide broad shoulders and mm-hmm. these sort of things so like a lot of what has existed in the world is based off of research on mm-hmm. male bodied people yeah so if someone is in a relationship or is having sex with someone who a man or otherwise that has like been educated through porn believes that women can just like instantly get off and like come a million times. Yeah. <laughs> I've and got through no, just like a couple of yeah, thrusts. literally just a few like pumps. Obviously, yeah. I've got a bit of resentment lingering. <laughs> but if someone is with someone like that, how do you even open that conversation or kind of say like in a nice way, this is not working for me. This is like women in general need more or just kind of open their mind to how other bodies experience pleasure. Yeah. So I I often find, especially if you're talking about a person with a male ego. Yes. (laughs) Coming from, this is what I'm learning about myself, right? So like as a person who is in a relationship with this person who wants to say, my body doesn't get off in four Mm. minutes my body takes longer and maybe this is what I know is like hey like I learned this really cool thing about my pleasure last week or like I've been doing this course or I read this thing and I realized that actually like it takes longer Mm. for people with my body to get really aroused and that feels true to me that resonates with me like what do you think about that I think people listening will be like that I can't do that but unfortunately this is the reality Uh like this is what it takes to have fulfilling you know enjoyable pleasurable sexual relationships or just send them this podcast (laughs) link them if you get this link you know you need some work in the bedroom (laughs) but yeah I just feel like I personally 
it's a difficult situation because I have all this knowledge now that I want to communicate to a partner so it can be amazing and so it can be enjoyable for us both. But at the same time with new partners, I get stuck in my old habits of like, I almost feel bad or guilty. Uh Maybe that's just me personally what I need to work on, but I'm sure other women feel the same way. It's like I'm taking too long or I feel like difficult to ask for what I need. And even if I do ask and it still doesn't work, I'm like, oh, okay, well, let's just like move forward and pretend that that's not happening. Which is sort of like that people-pleasing mentality, Mm. right? Like I don't want to hurt this person's feelings. And ultimately I think we need to be, although we can sort of like sit here and be like, men need to learn these things. Yeah, of course. We all do. None of us did. Yeah, exactly. And so I I think probably those with vulvas learn more about it because it's their body. And so they either think there's something wrong with them, like what you described before, which is the most common narrative around this, rather than like there's something wrong with the way that we learned about it. Yeah, so true. And so when we do know about it, then like we we have to come at it from an angle of like, I didn't even know this until recently, but like how crazy is this information Mm -hmm. that I'm Mm -hmm. reading or hearing or listening to? I think also another really important thing on this is if you're having sex with a person who doesn't care about your pleasure, they're probably not worth having sex with. (laughs) Guilty. (laughs) (laughs) No, not at the moment, but I have definitely been there. Yeah. So when you think about like if you feel bad to bring up like, hey, like this is what I know about how what I need to arouse and this is what I know about my pleasure, if you're with a partner who's like, I want to like give you pleasure or at least equal pleasure, yeah. right, then they will be receptive to hearing it. It might be tricky because if they do, you know, there is like such a like macho thing about mm. sex, like men just know how to fuck. Yeah, know, yeah. Can I swear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. And we said clit and like everything yeah, else. So we don't swear words to me no. though. It's one of my language. <laughs> I hope it's like blasting in a cafe somewhere people are just walking past. <laughs> pleasure. Yeah, <literally>. yeah. <laughs> Pumping along. <laughs> Oh, oh gosh. I've like completely lost my Yeah, train, I know. But... Same. I forgot what we were talking about. <laughs> Let's change gears, maybe. Yeah. I want to just find out a little bit more about general relationship theory and then maybe let's talk about my journey with you. Mm-hmm. We didn't specifically say it, but you are my therapist. Yes. Like we, I've been visiting you for years and it's changed my life. Like I've said that to you before in person, but it truly has. I think about the person I was when I came in to now, which we'll get into. You've changed your own life. Oh, but I really you. appreciate You have that. provided the space to do it and yeah. the tools and the empowerment for me to do it. I think just having you be like, it's all normal. And this is, if this is the person that you want to become, these are the tools to get you there. Yeah. And well, also thanks. you just understand me. Like I went to a few therapists who we did the whole talk therapy thing. I remember after my first session with you, you were like, here's an entire recap on your session and your homework. <laughs> I was like, I found my woman. She's it. So you get the I love way homework. I work. I love homework. <laughs> Just before we go into that, let's talk a bit about what people come to see you for, common things, and I just want to do some like rapid fire questions at you and kind of get a general consensus. Yeah. So what would be like the top three things that people present to you for? Desire discrepancy. Mm-hmm. So one person with a higher or lower libido than their partner or mm-hmm. just someone experiencing low desire generally. Mm-hmm. And then I would say like the second bracket would be functioning concern. So that would be like um, erection issues, ejaculation issues, mm-hmm. painful sex, so vaginismus or yeah. other type of pelvic pain disorders. That would be sort of like the second bracket. And mm-hmm. then the third would be sexual trauma. 
Right. And what is your personal approach? Like, can we talk about how Good Vibes started? Because I completely missed out the start. Yeah. How did Good Vibes start and what is your philosophy to therapy? Yeah. So Good Vibes started with some help from my coding younger brother <laughs> and my um, performance management partner. Thank you so much yes, to both thank of you. you. <laughs> I owe you everything. Yeah. Um, when I finished uni in Sydney, I guess really in Australia, there are in Melbourne now, a couple of practices that have multidisciplinary yes, um, yeah. sexual wellness spaces. But when I finished uni in 2017, there were none, and there still aren't any in Sydney really, um, where you can like go, like Relationships Australia is like the relationship mm-hmm. version of it, I suppose, but there is just, everyone's in private practice in sex therapy. And so when you finish uni, they're just like, off you go. Yeah, enjoy. Like, yeah, we yeah. did a professional placement um, course, which was supposed to teach us about how to like start a business and market and all Mm -hmm. these sort of things and the marketing advice we got was to take sandwiches to gps oh no and i was like we live in the digital (laughs) world not good yeah okay anyway so luckily my partner knew a thing or two about google yeah um so i just made a website and then started i was still working as a rehab counselor Mm -hmm. part-time and then as soon as i got enough clients to like pay my rent Mm. um i quit and then i started doing like good vibes full-time and that was in 2018 and then I've just slowly grown from there. And what was the second part of the question? What's my philosophy? Yeah. I just want to create a judgment-free space for people to talk about like absolutely anything. And I think that when it comes to sex and intimacy, if there is judgment, then people are not going to feel safe. Mm. And so I've always been like very non-judgmental and very totally. like curious about people and like why people think or do, and especially with like desire and arousal, like why people are turned on by the things mm. that they are. And so I think that for me, it's more, it's just about offering a space for people to come in and be like, whatever is going on they can talk about. Mm -hmm. And what I really enjoy about the work is that often people present with like specific intentions around any of the sort of topics that I just mentioned before. But I have clients now that I've been seeing for years, Mm -hmm. right? Like similar to you maybe where the initial sort of issues have transformed into something else or they have resolved but then these people continue to come back and sometimes we don't even talk about sex in a session yeah we sometimes we don't yeah, yeah. <laughs> most of the time at the moment yeah because i'm not getting any yeah. <laughs> <laughs> open application yeah <laughs> inquire here yeah. inquire within <laughs> oh dear. so i just yeah i think that for me like the only thing that i want to do is like allow people to talk about yeah and normalize everything and like the group works that we do is amazing like mm-hmm. working with groups because it is like that it's like as much as I as a therapist can say you're normal mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with you it's the system it's this it's that like when people hear it from other people they're like oh yeah it's empowering you were right yeah well yeah I think it, you're the way that your business has grown is like a testament to your philosophy and how open you are and welcoming and warm like you have multiple practitioners there yeah, now yeah, I've got two other practitioners and a researcher yep, which is yeah. amazing yeah. and I just feel like it, I even recall one session where I had this like thing that I wanted to work through and I couldn't even bring myself I remember to actually explain to you what the thing was but I was like I need to work on it because it's like giving me anxiety but yeah. I can't even tell you about it and yeah. you found a way to like basically work through it whilst we went completely around what the actual issue was yeah. <laughs> and I just thought that's amazing it's like this open space where you just adapt to what people need and yeah you're awesome so thank you <laughs> let's rapid fire do you think that all relationship issues stem from childhood modeling and the relationships you viewed as a child this is like awesome nature versus nurture debate mm-hmm. right I think besides maybe some like outliers mm-hmm. 
Yes. But I think that I, the framework that I actually have um, taken on more is around our nervous system and the regulation and how we develop coping mechanisms and strategies as young children and then into like adolescence and adulthood. So whilst it is modeling, like for example, um, we might model avoidant behaviors or we might model um, like screaming in an argument, mm-hmm. right? So fight might be our modeled style. We can also develop like coping strategies that are the opposite. So it mm-hmm. kind of looks like, so if, as an example, if you lived in a household where your parents fought a mm-hmm. lot, then their their coping strategy was their fight, right? So their like activation threat response yeah. was to fight each other. As the child, you may not develop, model that same behavior, but you might actually mm-hmm. develop a people-pleasing or a fawn response because when we're trying to survive, our nervous system will will adapt to one of the strategies that is most likely to keep us alive. So as a child, if your parents are like throwing things across the table at each other, you're better off like running. So flight Mm -hmm. or fawning, like Mm -hmm. trying to placate your parents, trying to like um, calm the situation down because that is the most likely thing to keep you safe. I'm sure lots of people listening are kind of like reflecting on their own upbringing and the way they approach relationships. But you kind of did answer my next question, which is thoughts on attachment styles, because I actually came to a session and I was reading the book and we were talking about it. So can we have a little insight on that? Yeah, yeah. So I love attachment styles Mm -hmm. because I think they're a really good way to take ownership of the behaviors that we have in relationships. So like, and yeah, that book Attached. Yeah, who's by? Amir Levine and Rachel Heller. Everyone add that book to your list. (laughs) It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, It describes like, okay, so if you have an avoidant attachment, then these are the sort of behaviors that Mm -hmm. you might exhibit. And I just think it's such a good way for us to take ownership of our responsibility in any type of relationship disagreement, because as two people in that relationship, we can't just always blame our partner for something that might happen. So I think in that respect, they're Mm -hmm. awesome. What I would say on attachment styles is you your attachment style can be different in different relationships and it can also change. That's what blew my mind because I've always thought I'm a certain attachment style. I used to think I was anxious or Mm -hmm. I was anxious and now I think I'm like anxious avoidant or more so avoidant. Like I kind of have this disorganized style but I think that has purely changed through my relationship history and the types of people I've dated and I've developed this like coping strategies that yeah. have led me into more avoidant. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so I think, yeah, if you sort of think about it from the framework of like, what are the coping strategies mm. and mechanisms that I have, whether they're adaptive or not, or healthy or not, these are the strategies that I have to support myself in like not getting too close to people if people have always let us down or in like really clinging to people because we don't yeah, want to be chasing alone. the yeah. commitment. Yeah. Mm. So I think, and I think also we can learn to be more secure, Mm. but it's tricky. Like you might be a secure person and then get into a relationship with someone who's really avoidant and then actually you might start to pick up, yeah, anxious tendencies or anxious behaviours because as humans we crave and we actually need like connectedness to survive. I think this has been like my whole journey (laughs) is honestly coming from an anxious attachment style and then moving into more of a secure grounding and it's come completely from me. I think even though I've had these external relationships influence how I react, it's just been this process of like learning what I need, learning what I want, communicating it, actually saying how I feel, having clearer boundaries, standing up for my worth, all these things (laughs) that have like developed me into a more of a secure person. So now I can approach a relationship and my goal is to find someone who's also secure and yeah. we can build something together rather than like I need this off you and you need this off me and this constant like push-pull yeah. game that I just don't even think is 
it doesn't achieve anything. Yeah. So I wonder, are you anxious? Avoid? Are you are you actually avoidant, or are you just standing up for who yeah, you are? Yeah, I don't know now. Well, <laughs> like, what does I it think mean I'm, to be avoidant? I think I'm avoidant at the moment in my life, which we've talked about me being like scared of commitment and scared of marriage, and not in a general sense like I want that one day but right now I'm almost scared of like finding the one which I think is not even a real thing anymore but yeah like finding that person that's going to like change my life plans because I'm so happy with where my life is at and clear on my path and I kind of want someone to like come along for the journey Uh and build their own thing and but I'm just scared about like finding. Maybe that's more like independent, like scared of losing your independence. That's exactly what it is. It's like if I start to feel threatened that I'm going to have to compromise, which is part of a relationship, I'm like, oh, I can just be on my own and do exactly what I want. And do you know what? I think interestingly, like to move away from the attachment lens on this, I think that goes back to what I was saying before around social narrative. Mm -hmm. You can be, you don't need to have a partner. You don't need to get married. You don't need to have kids. And actually like the research recently has shown that more women off the back of a marriage breakdown are choosing to stay single. They would prefer to live with their best mate and have a dog and like live out their lives Mm. going on cruises and like having a great (laughs) time. I don't know, whatever they're doing. Exactly. It can be hard because I have where I'm at. I thought we'd talk about this later, but now it's coming up. Like I'm happy to talk about it. I just feel as if I'm currently in this stage where I'm a human and I yearn for connection Mm -hmm. and touch and physicality, especially because my love languages are like physical touch and words of affirmation. I really enjoy connecting with someone and I miss that. I live alone and I often come home and think like, I just want a hug. I don't even want to have sex. I just want a physical companion near me. But then at the same time, there's this threat of like, but if I want that, that's probably going to lead to a loss of independence. Uh So it's kind of like grappling with those two conflicting needs that I have yeah and maybe I guess considering what needs can I have that are met from not like a a sexual Mm. or romantic relationship so like going for dinner with friends hugging with like physical contact with friends like if the if it's about physical touch maybe not sexual but if it's Mm. about physical touch then are there other ways that we can have that without giving up our independence or without necessarily mm. having to be in a relationship if we don't want to. And I remember you saying that to me, like it, you should map out your week and kind of figure out the days of which like you really struggle if it's a Friday night because you don't go out or a Sunday afternoon and like scheduling something on that day yeah. to kind of fill that need, which has helped. <laughs> so thank you. The only other quick fire questions I have is what are the red flags in the early days? If anyone's currently dating or they've just started seeing someone... Maybe me. Yeah. (laughs) What are the red flags for the newbies? So anything that is not respecting a boundary. And I think a really good way to like not necessarily test this, but to see what I mean by this on a first date is like if you go for dinner and drinks, for example, and then you're like, all right, like I've got a busy day tomorrow, so I'm going to head home going, no, one more drink, one more drink, like coercing you. Yeah into staying for another drink, right, when you actually have said no and maybe, like, to say, oh, like, are you sure one more? Mm. Like, fine. But if someone is trying to convince you to do something, even from the very early stages of a relationship, to me that is a red flag. I actually really don't see that many red – I actually see red flags as, like, um, maladaptive emotion regulation. Like, a lot of things that people would see as a red flag – I tend to see as maybe like a distress tolerance. So the way that people might respond or react to certain things like shutting down is probably a flight response. Mm -hmm. So I start to, I think for me with red flags, 
I'm usually more like trusting of people that like there's probably something going on for them. Yeah, why they're, why they're acting in yeah, that way. Yeah, why they're acting in a certain mm-hmm. kind of way outside of things like coercion, manipulation, any type of abuse, yeah. um, anything that's dishonest. Mm-hmm. And the last question I have is it kind of is in relation to this. Is cheating forgivable or is lying forgivable? Uh-huh. I kind of see one as a version of the other. I think cheating is a form of lying, but just as lying is a red flag, like is that something that you can kind of understand from a behavioural <clears throat> perspective? Yeah, depending on what it is. Like, And I think important in these two things, I think cheating and lying are forgivable, but it doesn't mean that they're right. Mm-hmm. So like when I work with infidelity or when I was kind of thinking about this question around, because mm-hmm. it comes up so much around cheating mm-hmm. and infidelity, is like, there's a lot of defensiveness that comes and a lot of people have been scorned by cheating. I think mm-hmm. the research is that like nearly 50% of people have cheated. Yeah. So, you know, that means that probably 50% of people have been cheated on. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of emotion around this topic. And I think from a therapy perspective, understanding why the person did what they did um, and trying to find the meaning in it and maybe what was missing in the relationship and the person even who was cheated on taking some responsibility for mm. what happened is a really hard thing, like pill for people to swallow. But that is an essential part of actually moving forward from cheating and an affair. Do you think that cheating is an indicator that potentially monogamy is not a style of relationship that works for people or it's more so just a sign that something's off in that particular relationship? Yeah, so cheating can occur even in non-monogamous relationships, right? Because you think about like cheating or infidelity really is the breach of a relationship agreement. So whatever the agreement is in that relationship, if it's been breached, so even in some sort of non-monogamous dynamic where the boundaries you can date and have sex with people but you can't form emotional connection and then someone could form an emotional connection. So it can happen in any type of relationship format. Um, But I can't even remember what your question was now. Just do you think it, yeah, it kind of is an indicator that they either shouldn't be in a monogamous oh, relationship yeah. or maybe they should work on it. Like how if someone has been cheated on or is cheating, like how do you even approach that from a client perspective? Like what's the first thing? Is it just figuring out whether or not you want to stay together? Yeah. So the f- there's like kind of stages in um, affair recovery. So crisis is like you find out mm-hmm. in whatever way that you find out and that is really like self-regulation strategies, support networks. Like mm-hmm. that is like post-traumatic stress situation, right? For both people, often for the person who is the cheater, it's also like an extremely traumatic experience because Mm. most people who cheat don't see themselves as cheaters. And so there's a huge like mismatch of who they see themselves are as a person versus what the behaviors that they've done. So like that, yeah, crisis management. And then from there, it's sort of like thinking about okay, well, why? How did this happen? Why did it happen? Like common reasons for um, infidelity would be like falling out of love with a partner, not having emotional or sexual needs met. Mm -hmm. And you think about that, like people could love each other so, so much, but they have two kids. They're both working full time. Like life is there and they don't have, they're not prioritizing Mm -hmm. emotional and sexual connection with each other. And one partner ends up finding that elsewhere. So like often it's about figuring out what is it that's not working in this relationship in this moment? And can we address that? Are we willing to address it? And then rebuilding trust from there. Mm -hmm. But most like statistically, most people who are cheated on stay together. Wow. I think it's like the research that was done last year, there's two separate forms of research. One was like found that 45% and the other found between 50 and 70% of mm-hmm. couples who are cheated on, they end up staying together. So it's sort of what you make of it beyond that mm-hmm. point. Like you might stay together, but it might be 
not a very nice relationship after that. If you're not willing to go, all right, let's be honest, let's figure mm-hmm. out what went wrong and let's actually have some open communication and renegotiate what our relationship agreement is. Totally. Because, yeah, maybe non-monogamy is the right option, but often that's not why people cheat. Yes. The last question is, do you think sex is something that couples work on to get better at? Maybe this is a maybe this is a question that we say yes to both, but yeah. is it something that you have to work on to get the most out of it, for it to be its best, for it to be its most pleasurable? Or should it be based on chemistry and have like a natural click from the get-go? Both. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of people who get into relationships that met as friends or co-workers mm. or something and maybe there was years of no sexual chemistry and then like that chemistry and attraction can build over totally. time and that comes from also emotional connection with people trust. and trust mm-hmm. yeah and like loyalty and all of these sort of things mm-hmm. so when it comes to chemistry like maybe from the get-go you might be able to have great sex with someone if there's just like chemistry and you just seem to click yeah in the long term like chemistry like chemistry for a lot of people changes after the first couple of years because hormonally things shift we're like addicted to someone for the first mm. like six months yes. to two years all of the feel-good hormones are being pumped through our body all the time so chemistry kind of is that and then that is going to fade because we cannot mm. keep producing the amount of dopamine oxytocin um, and endorphins that we're producing in the first like early stages of the relationship and that's when it becomes like we actually need to prioritize this we need to work on it like mm-hmm, mm-hmm we never learn how to have sex and like we still really have no like platforms of other than porn. All the gear is, and no idea. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it is constantly yeah, and our learning. bodies change. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. think about like post-birth, like your totally, nipples might feel totally. completely, they used to may, may have been like your number one erogenous mm-hmm. zone. Now they feel like hell when you touch them. Yeah. So it's constantly learning and working. Like we're never done learning about sex. Mm. I remember you said to me one session, I was like, it just feels so unfair that I have to like go through learning all this stuff and then educate my partner on top of that. Like why? And you're like, I'm sorry, but this is just the reality. (laughs) Like, yes, you do. If you want a healthy relationship that's fulfilling or healthy sex, like this is what is required. And sex is no different to anything else. Like I've been trying to learn to play tennis for like (laughs) since COVID. It's hard, yeah. And like, sure I'm getting better yeah. like I'm I'm not losing every game but yeah. like I'm not good <laughs> like it's, you know, it's a lot of Sharapova, but exactly. you're trying yeah. I'm doing my lessons I'm yeah. playing with my mates you know and like maybe in five ten years I'll be good like yes. yeah. who knows but like you know you just gotta and I guess that's why it's so important to just have fun mm. with it with anything and Take acknowledge that you're probably gonna be mm clunky with things that you try for the first time totally let's change gears I want to talk about my therapy journey yeah so uh, I'm happy for you to take the reins here but do you maybe want to just start by um, reflecting on what you believe the first few sessions went like and why I came in because I'm sure my reflection of that is going to be different to yours. Yeah, we should have pre-recorded this separately yeah, first yeah, and then like yeah, done yeah. like Come a side by each other. <laughs> I will just say what I was going to say anyway even after you go first. <laughs> so my like my reflections from the first mm-hmm. couple few sessions, you presented Okay, I think also maybe mindful to say that we have explicitly spoken yes. about this previously. I've consented to this yeah. information being shared. We've signed things. <laughs> I release Christine from anyone, you know, cyber attacking me in the future. <laughs> Although I'm, I'm okay with this. I feel like we need to do this so that other people listening know that therapy is not a taboo subject. Yeah. Having anxiety, having sexual trauma, having any issues is nothing to be ashamed of. You can get help and you can 
you know, live a fulfilling, happy, pleasurable life yeah. with the right resources. So yeah. let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. If you need to take a break <laughs> anytime, go please in. let me know. Thank you. Let's and do it. what regulation strategies yeah. do you have for right now? Um, the five senses, like yeah. what can I see, what can I hear, what can I smell, and also just envisioning my body in the room and myself in my body, not above it, which is often something I do yeah. to disassociate. Yeah, good, awesome. So maybe even starting with that dissociating, mm. in the first few sessions I think what we identified and what I really noticed was <clears throat> in your description of sexual history, Firstly, that there was intrusive thoughts and memories. Secondly, that there was some, there were issues or instances of non-consent mm-hmm. um, that were happening. And I think even some that for you maybe were even being realized and uncovered in those first few sessions mm-hmm. as we went through your sexual history. And I think that's so common with a lot of women. Who that was really hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who come in and start talking about their sexual history and they go, oh, you know, this just mm-hmm. happened and but I was only 17 or this just happened and actually like mm. in moment in the room noticing that there were a lot of instances of non-consent, coercion, manipulation, assault um, and I witnessed that for you and that you were holding on to those things mm-hmm. and as a result unable to be present in the moment and dissociation was a big coping mechanism that you had which as we were talking about before, when we talk about coping mechanisms, it kept you safe. Mm-hmm. And I use that with inverted commas yeah, in yeah. <laughs> on recording. Um, that kept you safe in those moments because you didn't know what to do. And I think for me, I was at a point in my life where I was starting to realise that as well. Like I had been in these situations where I had made excuses or I was in complete denial about what the reality of the situation was. And my whole life at that point was an incomplete breakdown. Like I had a health crisis. I went to Asia to like escape my life. I quit my job. I had this full-blown spiritual breakdown and I came out of that, which was like a six to nine month thing. And I moved to Sydney and I just thought I need to see someone like I don't have the skills for this. I thought I did. I thought I was handling everything fine. My version of handling it was like repressing it, going about my day-to-day life, not telling anyone what I was going through. And I think I just got to a point where I was like, this is not working. I'm like having panic attacks on the bus. Mm. I remember I'd have to like get off the bus or the train because I'd have this overwhelming surge of panic and I'd just have to get off is when I was commuting from uni. And I'd be like in a random suburb just stuck there because I was like, I had to get off the train. Yeah. So I got to a point where I just wanted to get on top of my anxiety. That was the initial thing. I was like, I don't want to be anxious anymore. I don't want my anxiety impacting my life. And then I think coming to you, I realized the root cause of that anxiety was actually all these traumatic experiences that I hadn't dealt with because I didn't know how to. Yeah. And because like, you know, when you just gave that description there of like, everything's fine, like thought you were dealing with it is dissociation, right? It's like numbness. So you Mm. think that you're fine you think that everything's okay like well I can go to work I can go to uni I can do these things and I feel okay I'm not having an emotional breakdown but actually like a part of that that is dissociation Mm -hmm. it's like it's too much for your body and your brain to cope with and so it it numbs you out and that's a really common experience in grief as an example Mm -hmm. where you people just go into shock and then like disbelief and numbness until they have some maybe skill or some awareness or some ability or space to actually sit with what is going on. And I think that came from a combination of things, maybe because my, not that I need to like rationalize it, but from myself thinking about it, uh, reflecting, it's like, I was always taught growing up that like achievement was the highest thing that you could do, like achieve, work hard, you can create your life, you can do anything you want. 
be the best. And so that's kind of just how I went about everything. And I have to be really careful to not slip into that. And I still do when I'm like stressed or overwhelmed. I am like, just work harder, just not to distract myself, but to like strengthen my self-worth. It's like, okay, I might be struggling with this, but at least I have this, 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 and this Uh going on for me. So that can be really challenging. I think seeing you has like taught me to let go of the perfectionism and kind of like allow myself to feel what I'm feeling, which I honestly didn't know how to do for a really long time. Yeah. Well, it's it's scary, Mm. especially when there's a lot of emotion there. Totally. Yeah. Do you want me to share your intentions? Please do. From our first couple of So sessions. this was like, what, three years ago? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so just to explain, Christine sends you like a little survey almost when you come to your first session to kind of talk about what your intentions are for therapy and what your goals are. And I haven't read these in years, so let's talk about it. Yeah. So we had four. So the first one to reduce intrusive thoughts as they relate to previous ex- experiences impacting my current life. The second Very general. One, yeah. <laughs> big one. Yeah. yeah. Second, improving confidence and assertiveness in sexual communication. Mm-hmm. Three, identifying and working to bring awareness to and address negative relationship patterns, mm-hmm. i.e. attachment theory. Come on, on in. Ongoing. Yeah. <laughs> and number four, learning about my body and pleasure. Hmm. I love them. I feel... Like you said, it's never done. Like I still feel when you're reading that I'm doing all of those things Mm -hmm. still. The first one, I feel like that's complete. Yeah. I feel as if I have, and I want to talk about this, kind of gone into the depths of like the root cause of my anxiety, those intrusive thoughts, my traumatic experiences, and I have tools now in my toolkit and my resources to kind of deal with that when it happens. But I can safely say I wouldn't even classify myself as an anxious person anymore, which is huge because I used to go around telling everyone I had anxiety. Like I'd be like, oh, I have anxiety. I'm, you know, an anxious person. Was it sort of part of your identity maybe? It was completely like I'm highly strung or I'm a nervous person. Yeah. I just don't feel like that anymore. Like I feel strong, uh, stable. I have moments of anxiety perhaps or stress. Yeah, I wouldn't even say anxiety. I have one, I've had one panic attack in like two years. Yeah. Which was caused by a known trigger, which for me is not, this is a whole other conversation, but cosmetic surgery, anything Mm. to do with like changing my body, which I choose to do, triggers like this fear of the unknown for me. Yeah. So that I had a panic attack about something that I did to my body and I worked through it and I think I booked in for a session with you and we talked about it. But other than that, I don't think I'm an anxious person anymore. Yeah. Which That's is amazing huge. and I'm proud yeah. to say that. And, you know, it's for some people it feels important to like hold an identity around like anxiety or depression or, you know, another type of diagnosis. Mm. But what it shows is like you actually developed ways to self-soothe and regulate your nervous system because you were anxious. Like you were sitting in your sympathetic, your fight, flight, mm. freeze nervous system for years probably. Mm. Since I was a child, I yeah. think. But let's talk about the main thing that I think really helped me with the anxiety was EMDR. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, I just want to preface this whole conversation, which I forgot to do at the start, is like there's all these words that get thrown around on social media, triggering, trauma, mm-hmm. disassociation. Yeah, just feel like that 
they're often overlooked and we don't give people the respect and time of day to like actually speak about their traumas. So yeah, I think if you're listening, don't discount yourself because I think that's what I was doing for so long. I was like, these are not traumatic experiences. Why am I having issues with this? I should just be fine. But my body was telling me otherwise. Otherwise. And our body doesn't lie. Our Mm. brain can protect us, right? It's part of our defense coping mechanisms, but our body doesn't lie. Mm. And so when we're experiencing and like we try rationalize because it feels more comfortable and also people pleasing and it's difficult to stand up and say that that you experienced assault and it's it's can be a dark and lonely road. And so that's why this is so awesome that you're doing this because there are probably a lot of people out there listening to this who've experienced what you have. And there'll be people listening to this in my life that don't know I've gone through this, Yeah, which will be difficult to navigate because I can already hear the responses of like, why didn't you tell me? And I would have supported you and... I just like you do what you have to do to survive at the time, which was just get through the days for me. But let's talk about how you kind of brought up EMDR or what when you saw me for the first time, what did you think was like the way forward? What was your strategy? Yeah. So immediately when anyone talks about intrusive thoughts or um, being like triggered by something from a previous experience, which then heightens emotion to a point of like overwhelm or panic, Mm -hmm. EMDR is always something that I'm just like scribbling down in my <laughs> notebook. Doing I'm like, yeah. we're coming back to that, yeah. you know, and like depending on what else is happening, um, sometimes it's something that I'll talk about in the first session. And I think maybe for us it was something that I mentioned in you the like first session. The idea, yeah. yeah. And said, let me send you some more information on it. So that immediately is um, my go-to when there's anything around mm-hmm. intrusive thoughts or anything that's like impacting life in a way like it was for you then secondly um cognitive behavioral therapy Mm. i love i am like a bit of a science nerd yeah and challenging thoughts like reframing things um especially when it comes to sex and intimacy because so much of what we've been told is bullshit yes (laughs) right and we sort of talked about that before it's like what do we how do we learn about sex and most of the things that we learn are penis focused ejaculatory focused your body is the problem focused and like stay quiet pretty much even just on that your ability to challenge my self-narratives has been single-handedly like the most transformative thing for my life because you just have these beliefs about yourself and the way that you go about life and relationships and your worthiness and you just never question them you never question them because you're never given the opportunity to do so you don't have it's very rare for you to have like this higher consciousness now I feel like I do because my mind has been open to it. But up until that point, you don't have anyone being like, why do you think that? Why do you behave in that way? So to have you just simply question me or challenge me on like beliefs about myself in a sexual relationship was just so mind-blowing. Yeah. It's like my favorite question to ask people, where did you learn that? Yes. Oh my God. You do ask that a (laughs) lot. Yeah. Where did you learn that? Or like, how do you feel about that? Yeah. The, The fact that you act in that way or what don't you like about that? How do you want to change that? Yeah. And like, how does it serve you? Like a lot of our behaviors, again, come back to like either modeling in childhood or what our safety mechanisms were, how we kept ourselves safe from whatever it was that's going on in our world. Mm-hmm. And so most of our behaviors as adults and particularly in like relationships are based on those behaviors. So people pleasing, shutting down, fighting back, yeah. like all of these experiences are based on that. Mm-hmm. And so if we can challenge those and go, okay, so that did actually like serve me when I was younger because it prevented X, Y, Z from happening, it doesn't really serve me now. Yeah, that's so true. And it's like even though it's uncomfortable and difficult for me to not act in this way anymore, 
I don't want to feel this way anymore, so I have to. Yeah, like what's the tra- it's a trade-off, right? You can That's continue doing what you're doing and hoping that something changes or we can actually bring awareness to, and that's probably the hardest part, is when you start to become aware of the ways that you talk to yourself, the ways that you believe about the world, the mm-hmm. things that you do. When you become aware of those things, then you can actually do something about it totally. because most of the time it's just unconscious. So my experience with EMDR, can you please reflect on this, what you noticed, um, why you thought it would be beneficial thing for me to do, and just maybe actually give a little recap on what EMDR yeah. is for the people listening. Yeah. So EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. It's when I first did the training, I was like, this is woo-woo. This That's is what like, I thought. Yeah. I was like, this is not going to work. Yeah, I was like sitting in the training on the first day and I was like, oh, come on. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> okay, I'm hypnotized. I'm cured. Yeah. You know? I'm like, hypnotherapy, I see like a benefit to that. Although I can't personally be hypnotized, which really annoys me. Oh, no. Yeah, it's just never happened Never worked me. for you. No. Yeah, fair. Um, but... Yeah, when I did the training, I was like, okay, like, what is this all about? And then just when I started using, and so I guess to give context as to what it actually is, it works off of the basis that when we have an experience, um, our brain will store information in certain kinds of ways. So what you had for breakfast today will be stored in your memory for today. And then tonight when we go to sleep, um, there's a part of our sleep cycle called REM sleep, which Mm. is rapid eye movement sleep. And during that phase of the night, it's almost like our body's like, filing our brain is filing like what's relevant to remember and what's not relevant so we'll forget things that are irrelevant sometimes it will forget things that are important but like where I put my hard drive with all my information on it (laughs) still missing yeah like your phone's yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. um but for the most part it stores pretty well Mm -hmm. what happens when we experience something that is traumatizing um is that it's stored in our brain in a different way because our brain is and our body is there to keep us safe and alive as we've Mm. talked about a lot with our nervous system so if something happens that is extremely traumatizing for us and that doesn't necessarily have to fit within certain definitions but if it's traumatizing to us then our brain will go i've got to remember that yes and so it will store it in our brain in almost as if it's like in present day Mm. so that means that every time something happens in your life or environment that feels the same or that your body or brain interprets in the same way as the traumatic incident, it will basically remind you, nervous system will go into overdrive Mm. because it's like sending off the threat signals, like this is danger. We know we've been down this road before and this is what happens. So that's like post-traumatic stress pretty Mm. much, but it doesn't necessarily have to be like just war veterans, which is where EMDR first came from. So they found that it was really, really useful with um, working with veterans. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it works off of the basis of rapid eye movement sleep Mm -hmm. and being able to tax our working memory whilst we are sitting in an experience of trauma. So do you want me to kind of give? Yeah, please. Yeah. Yeah. So the best thing about EMDR I find is that you don't have to go into excessive detail about your experience because mm. people find talking about things often is really traumatizing. I found that very helpful. Yeah. So first step is like actually be able to have self-regulation strategies. Mm. If you don't have that, then you are going to be re-traumatizing yourself by talking about anything. Um, but secondly, all we really need to know is like a word or something that that will not let you know what mm. experience we're talking about. We want to check in and see what's happening in your body when that happens and identify what meaning there is in this. So mm-hmm. like common meanings in trauma would be I'm not safe, um, I have no power, I have no control, um, I'm going to die, I'm terrified, I'm a bad person, whatever it might be. So with those three pieces of information, we then actually just start with bilateral stimulation. So originally it started with eye movement, so moving mm-hmm, your mm-hmm. eye, so following eyes with hands. 
what we now know is that actually any type of bilateral stimulation can work really well, which That's was amazing. a dream during COVID. Yeah, because you can do it virtually. Uh-huh, it's really hard to do eye <laughs> movements on Zoom. It's like lagging the yeah. connection. Yeah. yeah. So um, I had a little, I think you used the hand yeah, tappers. We did yeah. both. Yeah. yeah. So using hand, bilateral hand tappers, even online people doing mm-hmm. this. So just like butterfly tapping their shoulders. Um, I know with kids now they do drawing on paper. So like getting oh, them to draw back cool. and forth and actually just following mm-hmm. with their the pen with their eyes. So there's actually a lot of different ways we can do it now, um, which is amazing. And it doesn't actually really seem to have any um, mm-hmm. impact mm-hmm. on the effectiveness as to what type of bilateral stimulation you use. But the long and the short is we hold that memory to mind, mm-hmm. but you do something that is keeping you in the present moment, which is the safe context of a therapy space. And your body knows, even though it's experiencing this emotional vulnerability, that it, you're there in that moment mm. with me. And every 30 seconds or so we'll stop, we'll take a big breath mm-hmm. and then we'll just check in with what you're noticing. Yeah. The amazing thing for me is that I kind of went in open-minded and I was just willing to try anything. And I just recall it being like the strangest experience because sometimes I would have the overwhelming urge to laugh mm-hmm. and you'd be like, this is okay. Let it happen. Yeah. Other times I would be like crying my eyes out or I'd feel like I was, I remember I felt like I was stuck in the chair at yeah. one point and you were like, we need to change the, like what we're currently doing to bring you out of that and I just also remember like one memory that we would focus on that would be the traumatic memory would trigger all these Mm -hmm. other like almost like a string of all these other memories that I didn't even realize were linked linked or connected to or feeling in the same way as that one memory yeah and so that was a huge exploration yeah and so like what you talk about yeah like a string memory mapping so sometimes we it's obvious that memories will be linked. Like if you've experienced the same type of um, traumatic experience a number of different times, it feels really obvious that it's linked. Sometimes they're nothing to do. The con- I guess it's looking at content, the um, affect, so the physical experience and the meaning. Mm-hmm. Usually one of those things is linked, but not all three of them. So the meaning, so like I am not safe, that could happen in a lot of different mm. contents or con- contexts. I remember having a memory of like, being in school or being bullied in a way that wasn't actually a threat to my safety, but it brought up the same feeling of like, I have to like hide or something to the current memory. So yeah, 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 that was interesting. Yeah. And so that's uh, the usefulness of EMDR is that it allows you to go into a memory without being over um, stimulated or becoming overwhelmed or dissociating. Mm -hmm. And it also allows you, it allows your brain and your body to do the work that you're mouth doesn't need to do through like years and years of talk I mean historically PTSD has been treated through like Mm. years of talk therapy like coming in every week with your piece of paper of what the experience was and reading it out again and again which is extremely traumatizing and had a really high drop-off rate Mm -hmm. whereas EMDR you don't have to talk about it I don't even need to know what's happening I just need to know that you are okay yeah and that something is happening like a body sensation Mm. change a new memory um uh, like thought, a belief, like anything that sort of comes up. And you almost get to like the end point where you're like, okay, that this chain of memories is done. Like I remember yeah. being like, okay, I'm not feeling anything threatening or uncomfortable anymore. I just feel like I'm sitting here with you. And then that was like the end of the session. Yeah. And so we did, I don't know how many we did. We probably only did like four. Yeah. I probably could have done maybe one or two more or could do them now, but I just felt like that was it for me at the time. I yeah. felt like I, I got out of it what I needed. But what was your reflection on it? Yeah, it was exactly that. And I think it it had – I'd done 
some similar EMDR on like mm. previously, like like sexual trauma is a big part of my work. And at that time when I saw you, I think I was not that long after finishing EMDR mm. training. And so I hadn't really seen it in practice that many times, mm-hmm. but I'd seen it enough to know when it was happening for you that it was working and and like especially when it comes to like sexual trauma specifically Mm. I have found that it has been like so effective Mm. in fast in quickly desensitizing to the experiences like almost instantly I I remember I'd have this huge emotional hangover like the next day and you would always say this is so cute but you'd be like do something nice for yourself after the session you're like I don't care what it is like don't rob a bank but do anything (laughs) that is you know makes you feel good and I used to go this was like before my vegan days I would walk where your old office was there was a 7-eleven and I used to be like on my way out I'm getting a Krispy Kreme and so every AMDR (laughs) session I'd come out I'd be like need a Krispy Kreme but then I'd go home I would often sleep or have a bath or like journal or just yeah kind of be done for the day and I would maybe feel pretty exhausted for like a couple of days and then I would come out of this fog like feeling a little bit more put back together every time until a point where I just was like I've got this is these memories are not affecting me anymore I could actually think of the traumatic memory the traumatizing experiences and I still do like I am right now I just have no emotional response to that not in a disassociating way I just don't feel panic I don't feel terror I just am like that happened to me in my life and I'm safe now I'm safe now and I'm almost like grateful that it has given me these skills and ability to connect with other people who have been through the same thing yeah but it doesn't affect me and that's like what EMDR does right it separates the the actual experience from the present day Mm. it puts it to where it stores it allows it to be stored where it happened yeah it doesn't make you forget about it. Mm. It just makes you realize that thing happened to me and, like, that was awful. Mm. However, I am alive and I am okay and, you know, whatever the negative belief was, like, if I'm not safe, it was like mm. I am safe now. I can keep myself safe. Totally. And a lot of our work has been uh, in the current day how do I reassure myself that I'm safe in sexual experiences and how do I communicate to partners if I'm not feeling safe or what I need to do to feel safe, which has been very hard. But I think like I'm keen to talk about my toolkit, which we've kind of developed and it's still something I struggle with. Like I'm not at a point where I just go into every sexual experience and feel comfortable and confident. I often have to like take it case by case. Some people I just know because of their the nature of the type of people I often choose to date, <laughs> which is like which is another topic. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> round two for that one. But like emotionally unavailable people, I'm just like it's not even worth having this conversation with you because I don't feel that you are a safe and trustworthy person yeah. to tell my traumas to. So yeah. I'm just not going to do it, which can be hard because then you feel as if you can't like really connect. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose like this is probably not the first time that I've said this to you, but you know, what is the intention of the relationship that you have? If it's a casual thing and that you feel comfortable Mm. enough and safe enough that you can assert your boundaries, that you can keep yourself safe, that you can remain present without dissociating, then go for your life. But like a person who is emotionally unavailable, who isn't going to understand or be respectful of your traumas is probably not a long-term partner. So true. And I remember you saying that to me. I was like, oh, acceptance, because you were just like, you can date dickheads if you want. Like for the first time someone in my life was not saying like, don't do that. You were just like, if it's for no other reason other than you want to have sex and it's fun and you feel safe and supported and trust, yeah. trusted with them, then you can do it. But just be aware that you're not, they're not going to be the type of person that you can have those conversations yeah. with. So, And I think actually it speaks to what you, what we've spoken about before, which is like in 
if you're someone who's experienced experiences any type of sexual anxiety mm-hmm. is set yourself up for success. Mm-hmm. So if you're going on a date with someone who already is like emotionally unavailable in the messages, who already has like mm. coerced you into meeting up with them, whatever yeah, it is, yeah. like all those sort of flags that we talked about mm-hmm. is like that person is probably not going to, or they're going to be less likely to be like, I'm prioritizing your pleasure. Mm. I really want to hear about like what's going on with you. Like those people are like one and done. Yeah. Which like if if you can feel safe enough in that context and that person can respect your boundaries, like go for it if that's what you want. Yeah, it's down to personal preference too. Some women love, or some people ha- love having casual sex. It's empowering to them. I've tried it personally. I don't find it to be what I need in life yeah. right now. Maybe one day I will, but it's just not, it just doesn't give me the safety and and support that I need. Yeah, That's not to say that I don't not find it pleasurable, but yeah, that's a whole other thing. So my toolkit, I would say I've written down is mindful masturbation, becoming more in my body and being aware of the surroundings in the room, which is what I did before. Yeah. What else do you think we've worked on? I actually wrote a list here. Oh, please. Um, let me have a look. Do I have it? Yeah. So, um, yeah, but becoming more aware of your body's surroundings, the grounding. Yeah. So grounding exercises, safety and nervous system regulation. Mm-hmm. assertiveness and boundary setting mm. and the relationship inventory that we did. Oh my gosh. Let's talk about that. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. I forgot. So yes. Talk about, please. So on. the relationship inventory is actually taken from the book attached, which we talked about a little bit earlier. And I love it mm-hmm. because it is such a good way for you to reflect on previous relationships. Don't have to be romantic, but they can mm-hmm. be. Um, you could look at like, yeah, caregivers, um, really close friends and then also like romantic and sexual partners. And it just asks you like a bunch of questions about maybe ha- what your insecurities were, what the common like um, issues were. And it really like, I think for you especially, you were like, okay, this is Has like a few patterns. <laughs> <laughs> I like knew that there was, but then seeing it on paper, I was like, what the fuck are you doing, Georgia? Like, are you serious? You're just doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. Yeah. I'm wondering why you feel the same way. Like, come on. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard. It's a hard pill to swallow. But there's a reason that I'm obviously refusing to like deal with that, which I think comes back to the threat of independence and all. It's like these people that are emotionally unavailable are safe because they don't want commitment, Mm -hmm. even though that's maybe what I want deep down. It's a safe thing to not be that vulnerable, which is a huge thing. Vulnerability, it's like very scary, which I'm even, I don't care about what my friends and family think of this podcast. I'm concerned about what potential partners or people, guys that I'm talking to or sleeping with are thinking, listening to this. Cause I'm just like, it totally shatters the illusion that I'm this strong, independent, sexy, confident, like goddess. Instead, I actually have traumas and I'm vulnerable and I like, am. yeah, it's just really hard thing to deal with. Yeah. But I, I guess like you think about the framing of that, right? Because you've experienced these things, you think that you're not strong, confident, assertive, mm. and yet you're literally doing a public podcast <laughs> where you're talking about sex. Like, mm. you know, what does sexual confidence even mean? Yeah. And it's like you're we're sitting here, like we're not having sex with each other, but we're communicating talking about, about sex it. Yeah. in like a really open, mm-hmm. like playful way considering the things that we're talking about 
to me, that is sexual confidence. Thank you. I remember one thing you said to me was, if you must, to get into character or to get yourself ready, like have an alter ego, like Beyonce has Sasha Fierce. And I was like, I'm going to do that. Like I'm going to play Lizzo on the way to like this guy's house that I'm going to, (laughs) or, you know, have these little things that like snap me out of my own bullshit and remind me that sex is meant to be fun, meant to be playful. It's meant to be a way to connect with others. I'm a very deeply spiritual person and it can be a way to like have that experience with another person. And so reminding myself of all those things when I'm fearful or like nervous has changed a lot for me. Yeah. And I think that that's like a really key strategy for like comf- for assertive communication, because if we think like, oh, I've never spoken up about sex before. I've never asked for what I want. I've never prioritized my pleasure. It's like, there's some way that you can be like, okay, that was that part of me. Mm. But this other part of me, yeah, this Sasha Fierce part yeah, of me yeah. is like going to ask for what she wants mm-hmm. and she's going to get it mm-hmm. and like that like when we when I talk to anyone about like what is sexy sexy is not a physical appearance sexy mm. is like a confidence that was sorry there's like so many things coming up that I'm remembering now <laughs> I'm gonna try and like wrap it up soon but one of the things that you've taught me is that you are not worthy of pleasure because of the way that you look mm-hmm. or your age which was a huge like belief of mine I don't even know kind of where that has been developed but like if I date older men and I'm younger and hot, like I'm more worthy. And uh-huh. I remember you just being like, what? Do you think you're wor- more worthy because you're young? Like that's just so not true. So like we obviously framed it like, in a nice way. Us, right? Yeah. And so I think like being more aware of like my relationship inventory, my patterns, dating older people, dating people who are unavailable or who valued my body and the way that I look has led me to like develop this belief system that I must be only worthy of pleasure when I look my best. And when yeah. I don't look my best, I if I put on a few extra kilos or I stop working out and I have had sex with someone, it's just crazy how the mind can be like, you are not worthy of this. They're looking at all your, you know, uh-huh. lumps and bombs. They not. do not care. They're not looking at the crease <laughs> in your hip when they're having sex with you. Totally. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but that's like crazy how your brain just thinks, oh, I can't enjoy myself in this moment and kind of shields you from that because you feel not worthy. Yeah. Which I don't feel like that most of the time anymore. I have moments, but that's an ongoing thing too. It's yeah. just like worthiness and body confidence. Yeah. I wonder if we could go back for one second to sure, your, please. you said that you're sort of like resistant to dating different people or like mm-hmm. with the relationship inventory stuff. I'm, I wonder like in these situations is like, yeah, what is the secondary gain of you staying the way, continuing with the same patterns? And I think you highlighted like the independence. It's like mm-hmm. the fear of losing your independence. If you become securely attached and you find a secure partner my eyes just like went wide (laughs) (laughs) then like maybe that means that you might not want to fulfill all of the path that you have for yourself because you might think actually I want this too. Yeah. And this this is the great irony is that has happened to me when I have deeply liked or loved someone. I've thought I can change my plans. Like I can move here. I can do this. I can actually, that's just the way that I think relationships work. You love someone or you see a future with them and you start to change what you thought was possible. But yeah. And it's not even necessarily like a bad thing, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. me and my partner met in the UK Mm -hmm. and I was like, come back to Australia for a year. I need to finish my degree. And we've been back for six years. We were like, yep, what, 12 months and we'll go yeah, back to London. It. Like we both were like, we want to be back in London. Yeah. And then we've never left. Mm-hmm. And now like our life is here and we'll stay here. Amazing. Yeah. And I think if you close yourself off to the 
beauty and serendipity of life. Like if you're so fixated on this path, that's where you miss opportunities and you miss meeting someone who could be an incredible match for you because you have this like closed-minded ideal of this is what I need and this is what I'm doing. So I'm trying to be, my current mantra is open heart, open mind. I'm just like trying to be open and I feel like a lot of uh, amazing opportunities are happening because I'm just, I've let go of the narrative of what my life is meant to look like and instead I'm focusing on how does my body feel when I'm with certain people and when certain opportunities arise? Yeah. If an offer comes to me, it's like, does this feel good for me? Do I actually want to pursue this? Yeah. And same with sex. It's like rather than judging a potential partner on whether or not they're a good fit and they tick every single box, which is <laughs> unrealistic, like are they going to provide me with every single need? It's like do I feel safe with them? Am I attracted to them or is there chemistry? Do I want to explore this more and can I trust them? And if it's all of those are a yes, then – like game on yeah yeah and actually I love what you just said then about checking in with your body because our brain will tell us go through the checklist Mm. and do this and I don't like their shoes that they're wearing and whatever Mm. else and I'm not good enough for this person and am I worthy and blah 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 whereas if all you do is just come back to your body of like Mm. I'm sitting here with this person what do I what am I noticing how do I feel if I notice that I'm feeling relaxed if I notice that I'm feeling really tense like what the messages that our body sends are undeniable mm. the messages that our brain tells us are like mostly false <laughs> exactly and I think having this tool that I use is that you've taught me it's like having an awareness of my comfort scale which maybe we can link people to some sort of yeah. comfort scale in the notes but going into a situation if I think that I don't use this so much anymore, but when I was coming out of like the trauma work, if I thought I was going to have sex with someone, being aware going in of like, what am I comfortable with? Because up until that moment, I had been in situations where I'd do things even if I didn't want to do them. And um, yeah, so going into a situation knowing like, actually, that's off limits for me tonight. Maybe I'm open to going that way if I feel good in the moment, but for the most part, like this is what I want to do tonight, set a boundary. But I think now I'm at a point where, I know I can do that. I've practiced it with people. I know I can say, I don't want to do this if I don't want to do it. But just trying to be open to like the fun and the joy of the experience too. And just saying to myself, it's okay if like we do all of this stuff on the first date. If I'm feeling good and I feel like I want to do this, then there's no shame or judgment around that. Yeah. it's You you sort of said then, and I don't know why I didn't write that in my list of, did you say comfort scale maybe? I I think I did, but Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean- like the the premise of comfort scale is like zero to 10. 10 is like panic attack. Zero is like I feel completely yes, thank comfortable. thank you for explaining. <laughs> yeah. And literally anything in the world can, I, and especially with anxiety, this is so useful, but like you can do anything in the world on this. Like how do I feel about going out for dinner tonight with yeah, my friends? Yeah, right? yeah. I feel like one. Okay, cool. I can do that. Mm. Um, and our nervous system is based off of this as well. Mm. It's like once we hit like a five or a six out of 10, we're probably entering into like our sympathetic nervous system fight flight response. But what you just said, then was like that you used to be you used to be really useful in a framework and now you don't use it but what you're probably doing is it's just become unconscious Mm, that's so true because you have to be more intentional about things and we're learning them and being like how do I feel right now I'm a three out of ten or I'm a five out of ten that's actually how do I feel about this whereas now you're actually just saying like you're going into it and like you're not even really having to think about it because in moment you'll be checking in with yourself. Yeah, I just like vet the situation when I'm in it. I'm like, am I feeling good? Am I feeling turned on? Like if so, great. I'm not going to overthink it. I'm going to go with the flow. Yeah. If it changes in the moment, I'll speak up. And that's just amazing that I now have the skills to do that because for so long, like 
oh, it just makes me so sad that I would literally just do all this stuff that I didn't want to do because I didn't have the voice or the tools to say I didn't yeah. want to. Or because I thought that my worth was tied up in doing it, mm-hmm. like giving pleasure to someone else. And sometimes very uh, intuitive or just partners that listen and are aware, sexual partners, will pick up on that with me. And it's like amazing when they do because it allows me to like be more vulnerable if they say, I notice you always like want to do things to me and you never let me do it to you. Or like you seem a little hesitant or, you know, that communication is so valuable. So I think, I mean, for anyone coming out of trauma, it's like find the right resources, find an amazing therapist who will support you in a way that works for you, but also like don't be afraid to communicate that with a person about what you need and to yourself what you need. So, yeah. Can you reflect on anything else that you wrote down or that you wanted to share about my journey or what we're currently working on? Feel free to just go for it. Well, something else I guess was like what we still work through today. So as you said, like, as I said before, sometimes my clients will come in and we would never talk about sex in that session, but like, you know, a lot of the same things you're still working on. Mm. Um, as you said, the intrusive thoughts not being there, which is amazing, but like those other goals are like ongoing lifelong Mm -hmm. process. And that's the thing as well. It's like you can only do so much work on your own. Now I think I'm at a point where it's like I'm going to have to put this into practice with a partner. Yeah. So not that I'm stalled at any point. Like the work is ongoing, but it's at a point now where I feel like the next learnings for me will come with a partner who brings this up for me, who meets me in a place of like connection and honesty and is willing to put work into. So... It just comes back to whether or not I want that Uh and like... And either way is okay. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm open-minded to what happens, but it just does feel a little hard dating because I have these like plans that I I don't want to go on dating apps. I hate them. I feel like they're void of authenticity and someone's swiping you based on what you look like, which is kind of like a wound for me so I just it's just not worth it and also like the whole concept of being ghosted multiple times and there's just hard world for daters it's awful (laughs) so if anyone's listening and they kind of want a relationship or your advice to me in this moment is like where do you start if you're like I'm ready for this and I'm ready to be connected with someone you can't just like go out and find your husband but what are the things that you can do to open yourself up to that yeah well if you've got a whole checklist of things that you're looking for, maybe like burn them. Uh, yeah, like th- I mean, obviously there's certain like values, or if there's like cultural beliefs that feel really important to you, and like general respect. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, like open heart, open mind. I mean, yeah, let's use your mantra. Like that's so good. It, it, openness. Often when people come in and they're dating, like I can't find a partner. It's like they're like I'm looking in this one mm. specific place for this one specific type of person, and it's like we can fall in love with like anyone. As mm-hmm. you said, there is no like one soulmate for someone. And so like, just be open. And if, if dating apps are not your thing and that's completely okay, like think about like, what community groups can I join? Mm-hmm. What friends, like become a yes man or woman yeah, or person. I like that. Like just start saying yes to things. Yeah. Put yourself out there in, in social situations, like in the workplace, mm-hmm. like whatever, wherever you are join groups like come and join me playing tennis yeah, <laughs> group tennis single mingle tennis seriously or like, like double yeah. dating but I feel as if for me where I'm at is like I I love that you said you can fall in love with anyone because I feel proud that I have never 
of course I find certain uh, physical attributes attractive. Like I'm into people who look after their body and are healthy and like I like certain emotional traits, people who are very empathetic or, you know, are driven. They're things that I find attractive. Yeah. But I'm open-minded to how that manifests in a human. I'm not yeah. like you have to be six foot and you have to buddy look like this and do – that's just yeah. so beyond I think what connection is. Yeah. But I think for where the work lies – for me, which we'll continue doing sessions on, is like moving away from people that are emotionally unavailable yeah. and moving more into connecting with those that are and how that feels for me. Yeah, love it. So I that's the goal. I'll book in <laughs> two weeks' time. I'll see you then. We have a closing tradition on this podcast, which is everyone has to answer the same question. Yeah. So, Christine, what is the meaning of life? Fun. I mean, I had to just go with what immediately came you to have mind. To. It's so big. It's such a big question. Fun. I think like we're literally just living in this world. I mean, yeah, I'm, I don't have a religion. So for me, I'm just like, we. the purpose of us being here is like nothing. So like, we may as well like the most. have a good yeah. time. I love that. And that comes back to plain curiosity and fun. Totally. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being my most amazing therapist of my life and my guru and life inspo and for agreeing to do this. I know it's like a challenging thing and I think that we handled it really well. I think you've done a great job. Thank you. And I'm just really proud of the effort we've both put in to get to where I'm at now. I think it's been like a joint mission. I kind of like came with these things. I was like, we need to work on this. And you're like, I've got you. And yeah, I'm just really grateful. I think we'll leave resources for anyone who has listened to this. If it's brought up any concerns or triggers for you, we'll leave a list of resources, but also maybe you can check out Good Vibes Clinic and other resources we'll provide if you're thinking of delving into therapy, but you don't know where to start. I can honestly say it's worth it, worth the money, worth the time, worth the effort. It will change your life. So thank you for being episode one. Thank you. Start with bang. Woo. No pun intended. <laughs> pun intended. I didn't even, I didn't plan that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Please let me know who you'd love to hear from next or if you have a story to share, I'd love to get in touch with you. You can connect directly with me on Instagram at Life Chats Podcast, one word. And every review and share really does help so much in the early days of building a podcast. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, please share it on social media or you can snap a pic of where you might be listening and jump onto Apple Podcasts and give us a review. I really do appreciate the support more than you know. Have a beautiful morning, afternoon or evening wherever you may be listening in the world. I'm Georgia May and this is Life Chats. Life Chats.